This evening I want to explore more one major aspect of our work with transforming the judgmental mind, and that is this aspect where we explore judgments, we're mindful of them, we follow the trail of the judgments, we go deeper to see the roots of the judgmental mind, and we transform them, and we all live happily ever after. (laughs) Or some version of that. So first, uh, just a few indications of that path. Here are two suggestions of a relatively easy way to transform judgments. The first is medical. (laughs) There's a cartoon entitled The Surgery. It shows a physician who looks like, in this case, he might be a surgeon who is visiting a patient in bed who has a bandage around his head. And he holds a, in a small bottle, maybe a foot high bottle, uh, a little version of the man in the bed (laughs) and says, congratulations, Mr. Meguin we've successfully removed your inner critic. (laughs) And it probably took less than six days. (laughs) And was less effortful, but probably a lot more expensive. (laughs) Here's a second example of someone who seems to have come to what Tara Brock calls a kind of radical self-acceptance. This is from a kind of a children's book by James Thurber called The Thirteen Clocks. Does anyone know that? Yeah. And it has a figure in the story called the Duke, who's the villain. And at one point in the story, the Duke possibly having done some workshops, (laughs) says, we all have our flaws. Mine is being wicked. (laughs) Said apparently with the voice of equanimity. (laughs) If not compassion. Or possibly neither. And so the third, um, third reading uh, actually came from when we were doing this retreat several years ago. And there was like uh, now uh, a second retreat going on. And that retreat, I believe, uh, combined meditation and yoga. And one of the teachers was Ann Cushman. Some of you know Ann, who he is both a Dharma teacher and a, a yoga teacher, has written several books. And her son was there. His name is Sky. And uh, he was very fascinated that we were teaching on transforming the judgmental mind. And we, he and I engaged in a dialogue, which I liked very much, and I recorded it. Here is the dialogue. This shows some of the complexities of transforming the judgment that aren't so much there with those early other two examples. Sky. We need to have the judgmental police lock up all the judgmental people. (laughs) He's nine years old at the time. (laughs) We need to have the judgmental police lock up all the judgmental people. Donald. Who polices the judgmental police? Sky. Themselves. They lock up the judgmental, judgmental police. (laughs) Donald, so they have to be pretty mature. Sky, yes. (laughs) 
So we've offered a kind of a map of the transformation of judgments. It has, has a few elements. We have distinguished between the more inner work that we do with transforming judgments and the more outer work that we do, which, which we'll consider uh, in two days in, in, more, in more depth. And very important, um, the primary focus of the retreat is on, on the more inner work. And we could do a two-week version of this, which would give due justice to the outer work. Uh, so there's the inner practice of working as we have uh, in the various ways, and there's the outer practice of working with the judgmental mind in the context of relationships, of challenges, and particularly uh, conflicts that arise. Uh, and in that, uh, skill in uh, communication and speech, as well as knowing how to work with uh, conflicts, whether interpersonal or intrapsychic, uh, is very important. And as well, knowing how to bring some of the inner practices into the field of um, action and interaction, which is very possible, and we'll talk about that. All of what we're doing in an inner way here can be brought into more complex activities that are more uh, fast-moving. Not so easy, but it's possible. And then we've looked at these two modes of inner practice, which has been our emphasis so far, the uh, practice of being mindful of the judgments, working to investigate them, seeing them uh, more clearly, uh, starting to go beneath the surface. And that's, that's what I want to particularly talk about tonight. And then there's the second mode of practice of uh, working in our retreat, particularly with heart practices, but working to develop um, sort of awakened qualities of mind and heart and body that, as we've mentioned several times, have uh, a number of functions in the transformation of judgments. They, they give us a certain amount of balance and resilience in being able to go into the sometimes hard material they give us uh, antidotes that we can use at times when we're stuck or a little bit lost to really just shift out of that stuck place. Very helpful. And then they, uh, as we've mentioned a few times, they shift our center of gravity as well so that we, in part, uh, drop the judgmental mind because we've learned to live more and more non-judgmentally with these awakened states. And that plays uh, a huge role, right? Because it's like uh, our identity shifts from being to some extent caught up in judgments to being less caught up and having that be a place we can live from increasingly. From the metta, from the mindfulness, from, from the wisdom. And I thought it could be helpful just briefly to situate before going further into looking at the uh, first mode of inner work, that is the going into the judgments, I thought it would be helpful to link what we're doing here with the basic uh, map or understanding that we have in Buddhist practice. Some of you may be wondering, you know, uh, how does this relate to what you might have heard at other retreats where we, the emphasis might have been on the Four Noble Truths or on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and so forth? And I wanted to make that connection briefly. Uh, interestingly, the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which many of you know well, as uh, Heather uh, explored last night, was the first teaching that the Buddha gave upon his awakening. And interestingly, it's a teaching which is really, uh, in a way, parallel to these two modes of inner transformation. That uh, the first two truths are essentially about the practice with an exploration of suffering and the roots of suffering. And the second two truths 
are about the exploration of freedom and the roots of freedom. That's a way we can understand the Four Noble Truths. As Heather was saying, typically they're understood as the first noble truth is that the truth there is suffering. The second noble truth is there is a cause or there are roots to suffering. The third noble truth, uh, peace is possible or freedom is possible. And the fourth is the practical path to get to freedom. And so there you can see there's a parallel, uh, two basic uh, rhythms. One is we actually, over time, we see the roots of suffering, we explore it. And then on the other hand, we, we open up to greater freedom and explore what makes possible freedom. Very analogous to how we're looking at uh, uh, judgments. And the, the qualities that are developed that manifest uh, that, those qualities of freedom are the qualities, a lot of the qualities we've been exploring, mindfulness, investigation, looking more carefully, uh, qualities of the heart like joy and equanimity, loving kindness, uh, developing concentration and so forth. There, there are listings of these factors, you know, the seven factors of awakening, uh, which include many of those I just mentioned, and then the qualities of the awakened heart, which we're covering quite a lot. Heather will talk in more depth about tomorrow loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, right? And so these are all being developed. The, the aim of mindfulness is to come to insight, is to come to liberating insight, which frees us from certain kinds of ignorance and confusion. And interestingly, the uh, three main forms, or I would say there are four main forms of insight. The first is insight into impermanence, into the changing nature of things, and we don't get so fixed on things. We, we're aware more of change. The second is, a, is insight into the nature of suffering and the roots of suffering, really similar to understanding the Four Noble Truths. And the third area of insight is into the nature of the self, and particularly the, the way that uh, there's more, can be more of an understanding of interconnection and the self not being quite so solid and separate from everything. And interestingly, our judgment work gives us uh, quite a lot of sense of all, all three of those. And the last one I didn't mention, the last one was insight, we could say in more general terms, insight into the sacred, insight into the nature of nirvana or nibbana. And that's where the practice aims. These are often seen as the core areas of insight. And the judgment work can give us a very clear sense of some of our core patterns that are connected with suffering. And I think particularly as Westerners, that the, I think the uh, conditioning of uh, around uh, being judgmental is this very strong conditioning that is particularly there for Westerners, other, especially self-judgment, as I mentioned last night in the example, or two nights ago in the example with the Dalai Lama. I think there, there, there could often be judgments of others. That, I think, could, has been there in many cultures. But this kind of self-judgment, I speculate, uh, is a, an occupational hazard of uh, having an individuated self or we might say of, it, it goes hand in hand with the kind of ind- individualism in the sense of individuals being the center of social reality, which is more and more prevalent in the West, which is not what you find in traditional societies, where the sense of self is way more collective, bound up with the collectivity. That has its own issues, but they're different issues. And that's, this is my own, uh, I think, uh, speculation, but it ha- to me it has a certain resonance. And, and I was mentioning in one of the groups, it's been fascinating to uh, be in countries like Thailand and watch with the process of globalization, self-judgment coming to more and more countries around the world. <laughs> judgment of self and judgment of others. And uh, I remember particularly, I'll tell one story, I remember particularly one time 
when I was at a gathering in Thailand of the uh, International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which meant people interested in connecting inner practice with social service and social change. And we had a wide gathering uh, from people mostly from Asia, but also from US, Europe, Australia. And, uh, and our hosts were Thai, and the organizers, the main organizers were Thai, but they had spent time in the US, and they had done workshops in the US. And so at the end of our gathering here, they said, we'd like to have a kind of evaluation. We'd like everyone to say one thing you liked and one thing you didn't like. And you could feel the cultural pressure not to go there. (laughs) You could really feel it in the room. People, the first people who spoke were extremely reticent. They didn't want to judge publicly. Maybe privately fine, but not publicly. They didn't want to go there. And the first two people were very reticent and tried to kind of start, mostly talked about the food. (laughs) They did not, many of them did not like the vegetarian diet. (laughs) And, and, um, And after a while, after the third or fourth person, some of the inhibitions were gone. And people just went into being judgmental and laid out. And I was sitting here, oh my God. Our organizers are bringing California workshop evaluation techniques and the Western judgmental mind to Thailand where we'll only gather strength. <laughs> so, and I, I'm sure that's happened. Uh, and so I contributed to it. <laughs> so, so I think it is cultural. Uh, and, but the, the conditioning, again, there's uh, humor, uh, by the way, I think is very helpful with working with judgmental mind. And I was, I was going to talk about that later, but I think very helpful because it's helpful to have some lightness around something which actually can be, feel very heavy, right? And, and uh, tight. So, um, yeah, I think that working with this is, um, for us with Western conditioning, whatever our origins, um, it really helps with one of the major sources of suffering, working with judgments. And it also, in a related way, can be a very uh, quick way to see some of our most entrenched structures of self. <coughs> you know, I sometimes think that the judge, uh, transforming the judgmental mind work gives us a very quick path into seeing some of these very solid senses of self, many of which were developed in childhood and have been there. And it helps us see them open up to them with compassion and understanding and transform them and work more towards that sense of uh, interconnection and a a very different and less fixed sense of self. So I want to, I want to, uh, for the rest of the talk, use a model in looking at uh, how we explore judgments and transform them, this first mode, you know, uh, along with that other mode of uh, being particularly with awakened qualities and here especially the heart practices, I want to look at that in as a four-stage model. And this is where this uh, chart comes in. And I'll, I, I have this up here just as a a visual aid, but I want to talk about four stages. The first is that we move from more habitual experience to starting to access judgments and what's driving judgments, what's beneath the surface. I call that the first stage. That's we begin where we are with more habitual experience and we start to investigate. We start to get a little bit beneath the surface and keep going beneath the surface. At the second stage, we start to identify what I'm going to be calling core beliefs, which are really underlying structures which drive some of our most repetitive judgments. 
And I'll, I'll explain that term later, but it's something like some underlying, often semi-conscious or unconscious, almost like internal models that we have. My, a typical one might be, I'm not okay. Or I can't really trust people. Often formed early on, sometimes with trauma, sometimes out of difficult, er- difficult experiences. The third area is where we start to reverse or transform those underlying core beliefs and develop more awakened ways of being with a particular realm of experience. So it's where I might have the core belief, I'm not good enough or I'm not okay. And I start to strengthen that sense of, uh, I'm a beautiful being. It may come out of the metta or out of the heart practices. That starts getting strengthened. Something like that. Could be, could take various forms. All this could. And then the fourth stage is that we gradually stabilize and integrate that transformation in our daily lives. So a simple model, the actual transformation is a deep one. It's a profound one. But it can be helpful to have that, have this model. And I think, uh, uh, I think we all really can uh, probably have some taste of each of those four steps. That's my hope. So um, the first stage, uh, this is what I called moving from habitual experience to accessing what is uh, beneath the surface. And this is where we really are in a sense, uh, we could think of this as like a journey. And I should also say that uh, this particular model of sort of like going from the surface level, the habitual level, almost like into the valley or into the depths where we encounter the deeper, more unconscious driving forces. The, the particular graph here I've taken, for, and I'm sort of reinterpreting, I've taken it from uh, one of the psychological trainings that I had in the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy which I've trained in, also Heather has, and I know some of you have. And it uses a model that's quite similar to this, and I've modified it for the purposes of the talk, but it, it, I find it a very helpful and simple uh, visual form. So we start, uh, and we can really see this, uh, another metaphor might be, it's a kind of a journey. And we start the journey by gathering resources. This is not an easy journey. And we want the resources, and we are cultivating some of those here. Some of them we've already developed. So in this particular approach, we, uh, we have the tools. We need the tools of mindfulness in various forms that we've been developing mindfulness. We need practices that help us to go beneath the surface. We've been starting to use the dropping down practice as one practice certain ways of exploring through mindfulness, the nature, using some of the embodied practices, such as we did this afternoon. Um, We use the heart practices. Those are a part of our resources, the different heart practices, which help us in the ways that we've, we've outlined. We also, and I think we particularly want to emphasize body practices is very crucial. So we can work with some of the ways that we um, are mindful of and calm the nervous system and the kind of tools which Heather has been outlining, uh, the grounding, the orientation, the pendulation, knowing what to do when there are uh, challenging situations and we're a little bit stuck or lost and how do we work with that? We Uh, Hopefully, we can also find the qigong as a really wonderful tool which can work in some similar ways, grounding and calming our bodies, our nervous systems, our minds. These are some of the tools that we take on this journey. And really before, you know, at this first stage, it's partly like a gathering of resources. Like if you're going on a, you know, we could also probably use a metaphor of the mountain. Here we're using the metaphor of the valley, but we could use the metaphor of the mountain as like we're on this expedition. We got to kind of have our 
well-packed expedition, right? We have to bring our various uh, resources if we're going to be climbing. And again, the analogy here is we need these tools to, to work with. And we also, in a sense, need other tools. Again, some of what which Heather mentioned last night, we need the, the resources of community, of mentors, of teachers, of other people to support us and so forth. So equipped with those kind of resources, we begin looking for judgments. And that's been the invitation at this retreat. We um, may start by, you know, as, as with my example, from being with the, the boss. I sort of discovered judgments only by noticing that I was in a confused place and becoming judgmental. So we start to, we start to look at judgments. We start to uh, see them more. We start to notice them more. And one of the occupational hazards of being really attentive to the judgmental mind is that we start noticing that there are a lot of judgments. Has anyone noticed that here? Anyone say, my God, look at, look at this. Am I just a judgment machine? Has anyone had something like that thought? <laughs> yeah. And, um, well, um, the answer would be, to some extent, yes, I am a judgment machine, or we are. Um, but very important to watch out for the judgmental quality of those kind of comments. Because the, ju- uh, the judgment, there are so many judgments, is still judgmental. But it actually masquerades, like many judgments do, as simply telling the truth and not being judgmental. I call it something like a stealth judgment, which is under the radar, you know, because it's actually, from a logical point of view, it's making, it's like an upper level comment, making a comment about everything else. And it's kind of saying, don't look at me, I don't count. But it actually is a judgment. And we have, and because if we don't notice it, it actually can be paralyzing. We can say, God, there's so many judgments and I'm a basket case or whatever other metaphor we use. <laughs> okay, so we come to see them, and we, all of what we've been, uh, probably many of us have been noticing for years, uh, and maybe noticing more in this retreat, we start noticing all the aspects about judgments. We start becoming more clear, what are the storylines? What are the main narratives that I tell myself? What's it feel like in the body? You know, what's going on? Um, we get a sense of the voices. You know, we may start to get, again, this is where just by being mindful, we may start to actually have some sense of what's beneath the surface. We might start to say, I think as I heard from some people in groups, gosh, that voice sounds like my mother, not, I wasn't meaning you. <laughs> In my case, that wouldn't be the case, would it? <laughs> but, we, but we might say, oh my gosh, that sounds, like, that sounds like someone in my family, or that sounds like my brother, or that sounds like my teacher, or that sounds like, some, and we start to get that sense of, of the voice we might start to get familiar. Just, and without even trying, we might just get a sense, gosh, or we might have a sense of the kind of judgment it is. Oh, there's the perfectionist judgmental voice, right? Or there's the voice of the controlling judgmental voice, you know? I need to have everything controlled or it's not okay, right? And uh, or it might be, there was a, there's a nice book which we'll have on the reading list, which we'll give uh, near the end of the retreat by Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss on the inner critic. And they named this whole series of ways that the uh, inner self-judgment can occur. Uh, they named the uh, perfectionist, the taskmaster, the underminer. Do you know that one? <laughs> the judgment that says, it's not really going to work. Forget it. You're going to mess up. I actually had one person I've worked with who every morning, 
He had for 50 years got the message in his mind, I'm going to mess up today. We traced it back to his father and his brother when he was about eight to 10. And I'll bring in his continuing story later. Um, But we start to get a sense of the voice. Uh, They also named the guilt tripper. Do you know that one? The judgmental voice that's guilt tripping for the molder into what is socially acceptable. We can have that voice. For connected with social conditioning, we can have the voice. Sometimes we get to notice that I'm not okay because I'm this. You know, and we might not believe it, but it can be there. I'm not. I'm not okay because I'm what? I'm this ethnicity, this gender, this sexual orientation, this age, this occupation, this educational level, and so forth. As we've seen. We may start to get a sense that there's some of the judgments come in those kind of forms. And we may see how we also not only judge ourselves, but judge others. We may start to hear the voices, you know, like, I am the moral authority. And you are messing up morally. I think that's very common, isn't it? I won't ask for a show of hands. Some hands already went up anyway. <laughs> you know. And so we can see that. We can see there's, you know, uh, that uh, m- making moral judgments is very, very common. Or I'm in control, you know, and uh, I decide what you should do. And if you don't do what I say, I judge you. <laughs> that may occur. Again, obviously that could occur more often in situations where we have some kind of power over someone else. And then we can have very detailed uh, spiritual judgments. Again, as we've mentioned, we can have, we can notice that in our spirituality, there's the judge of I'm not a good meditator or I'm this or that. And maybe because we're in the uh, period of the Jewish holidays, I'll I'll tell one of my favorite uh, Jewish uh, stories about being judgmental. Um, which bring, brings in a few areas. So one day in the synagogue, the rabbi was overcome with religious fervor and went down on the floor of the synagogue and said, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the cantor, the, the singer, was also overcome with religious fervor, went down on the floor of the synagogue and said, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the shamus, who's the, uh, what, the janitor, was overcome with religious fervor, went down onto the floor of the synagogue and said, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi turned to the cantor and said, look who thinks he's nobody. So spirituality and the whole world of meditation is just full of self-image, judgment. This is where we get into what I was calling positive judgments. Uh, James Barras tells a story, which is public, so it's okay for me to tell it, of really being into slow walking and really uh, wanting other people to notice. And he would make the mental comment as he was doing slow walking meditation looking good. (laughs) Looking good. (laughs) And and for myself, actually, in my first years of practice, it was actually disorienting to have no clear standards for what determined a good meditator from the outside. Because for me, I wanted to do really well. And I wanted to be recognized for doing well. And I think you should, you can probably tell that the fact that I'm, and I won't speak for Heather, but the way, reason that I'm teaching on transforming the judgmental mind doesn't just come out of it, my recognizing a good topic. 
you get the rest, right? <laughs> and so when I was first meditating, I would, um, I would get to these other stages and not leave us just with the first. But uh, anyway, I would, um, I would actually have no real way, way to demonstrate that uh, I was a, bit, a really good meditator. And so the only two things I could think of was to sit for a really long time and stay up late, which, you know, and be in the hall for a long time. And, you know, people don't seem to do that as much now, but when I was, you know, I was first meditating, we had competitive meditation developed. That's how we met. (laughs) Yeah. I think at that point I just stayed up late uh, without, without being competitive. I had worked through those things. And anyway, uh, and it, but it was still very confusing because my mentor at the time was someone, some of you may know, Larry Rosenberg, who founded the Cambridge Insight Meditation. And Larry, I thought, was a tremendously wise being, great meditator. He went to bed early. So, my, so already there was some confusion with my model. <laughs> but still, and I remember, I remember sitting there sometimes at night, you know, it'd be late 11 or 12 or something, and be sitting there and saying, I really want to go to sleep, but I want the other person to leave first. <laughs> anyway, this is true confessions. And um, just to say that it's very normal for this whole area to have... have some degree of self-judgment. So we can see that, we can explore that, uh, can just notice at a certain point as we're investigating the judgments, we also start to see the extent to which um, there's some patterns of this, here's the stimulus, and here's where my mind goes. This happens, here's where my mind goes. At a certain point we want to keep studying that when do judgments arise? And sometimes this actually is helped by reflection. For example, it's the end of the day and you know that you were four hours earlier as before, really just got in a really judgmental place. You can use reflection sometimes to ask, what was the stimulus? Because eventually we want to know what stimulates my judgment. Like for me with that story from two days ago, it was my sense I'm not being listened to or my interpretation that that was the case. So we really start to notice and study our reactions. This is all part of this first phase. We, we start then to have a sense, and this is something that can occur with the dropping down practice. I mentioned that for me, the dropping down practice over time started to divulge, started to make clear that if I drop down with a judgment, I often would find something uh, painful or unpleasant. Meaning meaning by that, anything which is unpleasant, not necessarily physical pain, but with the tacos, I would find myself judging and then I would drop down, oh, impatience, right? Or you could do the same thing at the light with the driver who uses a cell phone and delays us by like four seconds. (laughs) We get judgmental, right? And we, and we can drop down, oh, impatience, right? And, and as I was practicing more and more, and I was using the dropping down practice, I would come, I came to see more and more that virtually every time I had a judgment and I dropped down, there was something beneath the surface that was actually painful. That the, in a sense, the judgment was being driven by some kind of unacknowledged or unprocessed pain. That's not the end of the story, but that was very interesting to see. As I, as I uh, came to see this more and really be in touch with that myself, it really changed how I related to people who were uh, being judgmental themselves because tuning in so much to how there was pain for myself beneath the surface, it led me uh, for, for some time to really spend a lot of time when people were judging me or judging another to actually be able to tune in and feel the pain there, which changed everything, right? And this was your question about what happens when judgments are coming towards me. 
if I can actually not be hooked by the truth aspect or the the uh, discernment aspect, but really actually tune in, oh, this is coming from pain. We see that with kids, right? Kids are very judgmental. We tune into how there's often distress there. We don't do that with adults very well. And the practice over time, when we're more practiced ourselves, this is a way that actually judgments don't affect us in the same way. Because we tune in, it's not easy at all, but we tune into the pain Uh, This is from James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And so we work with the dropping down practice. And at a certain point, we start having a sense of what seem like some organizing judgments. Or there's, see, we have a sense, oh, here are my chronic judgments. Here are my top three, right? We get a sense of that picture. We might not be there yet now, but this is um, helpful maybe for having a map. And some of us may be there. We may start to get a sense of, oh, gosh, this feels, gosh, I feel young. Or there's a sense of I'm not, something in me is not okay. And we start to have a sense of what's beneath the surface. We start to come into a sense of what might be driving the judgments. And it's at this point, which I'm calling the second stage, that we start to have a sense of there may be some kind of limiting core beliefs beneath the surface that generate a certain amount of the judgments. And I'm using the term core belief. Other people use other terms. It's a very common term in psychotherapy or in psychology. Some people use the word framework. Some people use the word frame. Some people use the word schema. There's a wonderful book uh, called Emotional Alchemy by Tara Bennett Goldman. Some of you may know that. It's on the reading list. And she uses the word schema, but she, she talks a lot about this process and how it works. So there are basically ways that the uh, self gets uh, fixated and uh, that, that, that the mind uh, really follows a very ordinary way that the brain works, which is to try to simplify experience so we don't have to process everything freshly. And so the mind likes to form these models or schemata you know, we do this all the time. We do this with uh, um, maybe certain types of people or when we get to know people, we say, oh, here's my model for this person or here's my model for uh, meditators or here's, here's my... And some of this is helpful, but some of it can actually be harmful. There's, there's a way that we, you know, on the level of the brain, we like to sort of encode memories in an organized way so that we can learn from experience. But a lot of this is actually setting things up that actually cause a lot of suffering. Uh, Bias would be of this nature. A lot of psychologists are talking these days about implicit bias, right? And bias works exactly in the same way. The mind likes to simplify. And if I simplify and say, these sort of people are this way, it's easier for the brain than actually facing the complexity of people as they are. So the brain tends to work like that. And, you know, basically these kind of, uh, um, these kind of models, whether it's I'm not good enough or the world is scary or I better not trust people, these are uh, essentially follow a few, have a few qualities. They're, uh, well rehearsed, we've rehearsed them hundreds or thousands of times or millions of times, they're automatically activated. They're not conscious, right? They're automatically activated when a certain stimulus comes around, right? Something goes, is difficult at work, I get a negative evaluation, it may trigger my sense of I'm not good enough. And it's not, you know, and the judgment may 
it's not like it's all very conscious, right? Is this familiar? This is, you know, experientially, this is like suddenly automatically being taken into a funk or a trance or a fog or a cloud. Those are some of the metaphors I find helpful. Is this familiar? You know, the, the deeper ones, you know, and self-judgment can be like that. Something happens and bam, we go somewhere. Just like my example, I wasn't listened to. I didn't even think that. I just automatically went to this judgment, right? And, and, and so these uh, core beliefs are like that. They, uh, they're also quite difficult to change. So they're rehearsed thousands or millions of times. They're automatically activated and they're hard to change. But because of neuroplasticity, (laughs) they can be changed. That person who I mentioned, who had this uh, core belief develop, basically, I'm not okay, I'm not good enough, it manifested in the belief every morning, I'm gonna mess up. I started working with him when he was in his probably late 50s. This had been going on for maybe 50 years, every day, right? So thousands and thousands of times. And within about a year of working, there was major shift. And I would say he has really worked through that one. And it didn't take that long, you know, because he could set up other patterns and then with mindfulness, watch when the old pattern came along and just really consciously not feed it, not go there, you know? So that's the good news. So, but part of the work then is to really see increasingly the core beliefs, to come to know which are the core beliefs for myself. And again, they might be about oneself. I'm not okay as I am. I'm flawed, I'm likely to mess up. You know, one that I found in quite a few people that developed was, if something bad happens, it's my fault. Some of this may resonate with some of us. If something bad, I've seen, I've seen that in quite a few people. Or it might be uh, a belief that I'm not okay as I am, and that might come out of the experience of like being too much for one's parents. The parents give that message, you really, you really gotta change. Or it could be, another example might be, Uh, anger is bad. I might get the message as a three-year-old, I don't want you to be angry. I internalize that, I have a core belief, anger is bad. As an eight-year-old, I'm already judging other kids who get angry. I'm judging myself if I get angry. At age 35, I enter therapy. (laughs) And I'm surprised that my therapist says, do you have a thing with anger? <laughs> and we start working together and I, say, and I soon discover, I do. I do have a thing. And that is the start of maybe a transformation. So we start to see this, you know, where again, it might be, I am not okay because I'm this, I'm that. I'm, I'm a member of this group, I'm this age, whatever it is. Um, we can have core beliefs about our relationships my needs will not be met. Or I'm not safe on my own. Or others won't listen to me. And so forth. So again, there actually are core beliefs that are more positive as well. And I think we all have a mix of them. So the core beliefs positive might be my needs will be met. You know, or uh, I am okay as I am. I think we have a mix of these. But the, again, I'm particularly focusing on the negative, what we can call limiting core beliefs, because they generate some of our most chronic judgments that are linked with suffering. They can be about the world. The world is dangerous. Or I can't trust people. Or can be socially induced. One can have a core belief, if you work really hard, you'll succeed you know, which may ignore some of the institutional or social barriers, you know. But we can still, that core belief is very deep in this country, right? And so forth. We can have all sorts of core beliefs related to our body image and to our bodies. 
You know, and so um, as we study the judgments, we start to get a sense that a, this may be a, a core belief which organizes some of what I'm experiencing. And this isn't so much something we figure out. There it can be a place for reflection, but it's more, we'll, we'll explore this more experientially. Uh, and it really is something that actually one can, uh, one can explore uh, meditatively and mostly just by almost like being a detective who brings the mindfulness continually. At a third stage, we, having had a sense of the core belief, we may also have, start to have a sense of what is the reversal or the transformation of the core belief. Again, if, it, if we see the core belief, I'm not good enough, we may ask, what, what is, seems to be a reversal? And we can do practices that help bring this out more intuitively. You know? So for example, one person I worked with um, was really not so clear initially of what the core belief is. And she came to have a sense that her core belief was, I can't be happy because I'm a divorced woman. Very socially conditioned, obviously. Very strong with her. It took some time to actually disclose that. Once that happened, we then did some practices to help a sense of what is the transformed understanding. Sometimes it would be a logical opposite, like I can be perfectly well happy as a divorced woman. It might be that. For her, it was, I am a brilliant being. I'm a brilliant, beautiful being. And we looked for ways, what would support that way of understanding things. And a lot of the meditative practices, the metta, really helped to uh, develop that. And so in this process, there can be a gradual way that, again, to use our earlier language, we're shifting the center of gravity. We're moving, we're seeing the old core belief. We use the mindfulness so that when it comes up, like my student who had the I'm gonna mess up core belief, I'm not okay. He worked with James Barris's Awakening Joy class and he really loved the joy practices. And when the core beliefs would come up, he had investigated them very deeply. He knew what they were, he knew the territory. And so at a certain point, it became skillful not to say, oh, they're up again. I think I'll be mindful again. But actually at that point, it was actually skillful just to say, no, I'm not gonna go there. And to actually shift using the joy practices to a more awakened quality. And he was able to do that. And in this very transitional time, use those kind of practices to, after being mindful, oh, that's starting again. He was able then to shift to uh, another way of being, which manifested the, the transformation. And he was able to do that over and over again. Over, you know, sometimes, uh, and this is really moving also towards the fourth phase, it took time for this to be stabilized and integrated. It's work. There was, for him, for example, when there was a lot of stress, the old voice would come back, as you might expect. And there seemed to be regression, but it didn't last very long. Sometimes he would come to see me, and we would do some work and give some support, and it wouldn't last that long, you know? And this is part of that stabilization integration. There are regressions to be expected, especially when there's stress. It would make sense, wouldn't it? You know? And then, and so we keep on, uh, you know, so some of the work that we do at the second and third stage is more of an inner nature. You know, maybe that it's work we do in protected spaces. We explore those deep chronic beliefs in the protected spaces, we come to see them as they're manifesting in daily life. You start to have a sense, oh, this is why the body is so important. Oh, you know, maybe, at a, maybe something has happened, maybe there's a difficulty in relationship or difficulty in work, and it triggers that core belief, but we start to say, oh, it's there now, right? And everything starts changing when that happens, with the mindfulness, starts changing, and maybe we say, I'm there, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna let that take over. Sometimes we even have to be forceful and say, no. 
like it's like almost like we're speaking to uh, a puppy. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't go there. You know, sometimes that's necessary. And over time, then, in often in the protected environment, we also go to that third stage of the transformation. A lot of that has to happen in protected environments like retreats or possibly psychological work. Could be work with trauma in a very protected environment of doing that kind of work. And we start to get a sense of the transformation. And then we gradually start bringing it out and integrating it and stabilizing it in daily life in various ways. And all along the way, we have to remember that balance with the investigation, which is mostly what I focused on now, and the heart practices or the awakening practices. Sometimes we'll be going into the core beliefs, we'll be working with that, and it feels like the level of uh, pain or just being with hard stuff is too much. And that time, at times we have to just drop off it and uh, move to uh, just say, okay, for the next month I'm just going to cultivate joy. I'm not going to, no more dropping down. I had one person come to me who I've worked with a lot and she said, oh, this is so hard. I've been doing the dropping down practice at family gatherings for the last week. And I said, okay, I, can, I could tell she was a little bit getting unbalanced. Okay, let's do joy for the next month. I said, very good. And, and so some of the, some of the uh, story works like that. And so we have to keep in mind all of that which helps us stay balanced along the way. And so this is, this is a kind of a map, you know. And then, of course, part of the stabilization and integration is that we bring all of this into ordinary interaction, into speech, into our daily lives. So this is, this is a kind of a map of what is possible. And some of you probably already know yourself having traversed uh, maybe the whole path in some way, at least with some issues. And maybe some of you have a taste of it, but I hope this, having this map can be very helpful and can give you, certainly can help us uh, some with what we'll be doing in the next few days. So let me finish just with uh, some poems. I think two poems, one by the poet uh, Rilke, which is, I think, something about this process. This is uh, one of his sonnets. It goes like this. You who let yourselves feel, enter the breathing that is more than your own. Let it brush your cheeks as it divides and rejoins behind you. Blessed ones, whole ones, you where the heart begins. You are the bow that shoots the arrows and you are the target. Fear not the pain. Let its weight fall back into the earth, for heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along. Give yourselves to the air, to what you cannot hold. And then the second poem is I think about the stage, the last stage of that of integration. And it's very ordinary. This is from uh, Czechlaw Milos, one of, the, one of the great poets of the last century. Who, who lived uh, near, me, near me in Berkeley for the last part of his life. He was born in uh, Lithuania, what's now Lithuania. Actually in the same city where my grandmother came from. A day, this is called gift. A day so happy, fog lifted early. I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping 
over the honeysuckle flowers. There was no thing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envying them. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that once I was the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw blue sea and sails. I like particularly that line, to think that I was once the same man who, we could say, who did this, or this happened, or I did that. To think that I was once the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw blue sea and sails. Just very ordinary, but has come through a lot, right? You can tell in that. So thank you for your kind attention. And we'll, uh, we'll have uh, about 20 minutes walking and come back again for uh, a sitting and chanting. And uh, again, we may, we may finish a little bit early if you're feeling a little tired. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.